Christian, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You'll notice in your bulletin outline the first part, part is the presentation of the king. And under that, we've noted that his choice for transit, that is, coming into the city on the roadway, his choice was rather lowly. Although we've listed this as palms and pomp. There is pomp involved, and we'll look at that momentarily. But coming into Jerusalem as a king uh, is really rather unique when we see the event. This event is recorded here in John's Gospel, but it is duplicated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each adding some little tidbit more that helps us gain a complete understanding of the event. It is the season of Passover, six days prior to verse 1, the most important Jewish festival which God instructed Israelites to remember on a yearly basis. The events of our text occurred after Jesus had raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead, verse 1, and the whole region was buzzing with anticipation that Jesus would appear, verse 9 and following. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, because, because people were flocking to him, but also see him dead. So the chief priests made plans to do away with him. Many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. John 12, verses 9 and following. Now, the synoptic gospels fill in some of the detail for us. For example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that this occurred as Jesus and his disciples approached Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, a small city there. Mark adds the town of Bethany, different town. But this is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all siblings, lived, and in whose home our text tells us, verse 2, that a dinner was being given for Jesus in his honor. It was on this occasion that Mary anointed Jesus' feet with a very expensive perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. When Judas Iscariot opposed such as being extravagant, he wanted to give the money to the poor, at least that's what, it's, what he said. Jesus said to him, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Verse 7 and 8. Verse 12 tells us that it was the next day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. But just prior to this, he had sent two of his disciples to fetch a donkey colt for him to ride. Matthew tells us that they were to retrieve the mother donkey and her colt. Mark and Luke tell us the colt had never been ridden before. Mark 11, verse 3, Luke 19, verse 30. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus alerts these disciples 
that they will be questioned as to why they just walk into a town and begin untying a colt to leave. And he says to them, tell them the Lord needs them. Mark tells us that yes, people observing the disciples taking the colt did indeed question what they were up to. You know, you don't just walk into somebody's town and start untying their animals, but that's what they were doing. Luke 19, verse 3, identifies these people who were questioning as, and I quote, the owners of the colt. Now that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? It's your colt, and you have these strangers walk into your town, begin to untie it, and you know they're going to make off with it. Matthew, Mark, Matthew and Mark add that Jesus would return the animals when he was finished with them. Matthew 21, verse 3, Mark 11, verse 3. We don't normally think of that, but that's exactly uh, what he planned to do. He's just borrowing the animals, not stealing them. Only Matthew divulges that this whole donkey coat scenario is in fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's a newborn colt. That's why mama comes along when the disciples uh, pick this colt up. Now, just in this short read, you can see how important it is to compare all the gospel accounts if you want to gain a full picture of the biblical events. One gospel account will not do. The Holy Spirit moved each observer, each participant, to include things in their narrative that the others passed over. But by comparing scripture with scripture, the guesswork begins to fade and the truth begins to emerge off the pages of Holy Writ. And that's how you should study the Bible. I was watching an episode of Sherlock Holmes mystery series and Sherlock surmised that an apparently blank piece of paper lying on a desk had a message embedded in it written with invisible ink. Invisible, that is, until heat was applied and then the ciphering appeared, not magically now, but fully in compliance with the scientific characteristic of the ink. Heat it, and the message becomes clear. It was designed that way. Well, may I say it this way, that the Bible has no hidden message, but it disperses the details of the one and complete message throughout the gospel accounts. This adds credibility to the truth that the writers were not in collusion as they wrote. No, each was moved as they wrote by the Holy Spirit to see and record details not observed by their fellow authors. It's great confirmation that nothing in the Bible is staged. Instead, the narrative flows, as Peter tells us, Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 
1 verse 21. So what he is saying is here, there is no other history like this. There is no other narrative that authors write that are like this. No one can lay claim to such divine superintendence over the text or what is produced. The Bible stands there all by itself. Why a donkey, though? That's a good question. Why a colt? Why a recently born foal? Well, you would be wrong if you concluded that this was the preferred animal of poor folk, and that's why it's in the narrative. No, donkeys comprise the livestock of some of the most wealthy men in Scripture. For example, of Abraham. We read, he, Pharaoh, treated Abraham well for her, for Sarah's sake, and Abraham required sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, and camels. And the next verse says he was very wealthy. Of Jacob, in his business deal with his father-in-law, he bartered for the spotted and speckled animals as his wages. And the scripture says, in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. Genesis 30, verse 43. And finally, who could forget Job's tremendous wealth? Let me read it for you. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke, a yoke is two, so 500 yoke of oxen, that's a thousand, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. Job chapter 1, verse 3. And Job was likely a contemporary of Abraham. So these Old Testament guys when they are noted for being very wealthy, there is among their livestock a large quantity of this animal called a donkey. So you see, we cannot conclude that riding a donkey, uh, like driving a Chevy or a Ford, was the preferred transit of poor folk, while riding a stallion, like riding in a Cadillac or a Lincoln Town car, is the preferred transportation of rich folk. Can't go there. No, there's a different meaning in all this. And guess what? Zechariah's prophecy explains it. Let me read it again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey colt is characterized by gentleness. By gentleness. I mean, who ever heard of a king riding into his kingdom city in a way that displays gentleness? And yet, that is what our Lord did. Kings usually attempt to display majesty, power, influence, honor. 
That's how they want to be presented. And their preferred transit in Bible days was a horse. When Haman was asked by the king what was to be done for the man whom the king delights to honor, Haman didn't hesitate in the least, saying, So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. And then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before all, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Esther 6, verse 7 through 9. Of course, Haman thought it was going to be him that the king was talking about. And King Xerxes says, good, that, well, that's really, really good. Do that for Mordecai, the Jew. <laughs> you know, what a blow to Haman's pride. Well, he swallowed his pride and he did that. But the point I'm making is that kings rode horses. A horse, you see, is regal, isn't it? I think about, it. you know, Metamora is horse land here. You can go up here, once in a while you'll see the horses out and this one barn that's on uh, Dryden Road. But if you were to take one of the south roads, one of the dirt roads south, you would find all the horse farms that are back around in these hills in Metamora. And they are absolutely gorgeous with their white fences and the stallions are out there uh, in, the, in the pasture land. It's a regal animal. It snorts, it whinnies, it, it stomps its hoofs, it rears up on its hind legs. Its eyes flash, awaiting the opportunity to get up and gallop with the wind. You've all seen that. A donkey, a colt, a foal, a newborn colt, is not regal. It's, it's ordinary. It's, or, or it's ordinary. It, it kind of shuffles its hopes, barely lifting them out of the sand. It trudges along slowly and methodically. It is a, it's a, known as a beast of burden, bred to carry backpacks, but not known, not known for its stately pose or its wild ride. There's no flash in its eyes, and there's no lightning in its gait, and you will never find it racing in the Kentucky Derby. The nature of the beast. The people of Jerusalem knew well the might of Roman war horses. Rome's legions had laid waste to Jerusalem's defenses multiple times. And they would do it again in AD 70. When Emperor Titus would march his legions into Jerusalem. And level the temple block by block the scripture says. Until no block was on another. They had experienced the might of men with sword in hand and riding swift steeds to wreak havoc on innocent urbanites. I mean, this is what kings did. This is what Caesars did. This is what they expected from conquering kings. How utterly disengaging 
then must it have been to see Jesus entering Jerusalem as a king, riding on a lowly foal of a donkey. No waving over the sword, no sounding of the trumpet, da 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 No lavish tapestries paving the way, but palm branches instead. No snorting, prancing, pawing, stallion kicking up the dust. No, none of that. Instead, a little donkey, happy enough to just shuffle along, barely lifting its feet, gentle and easily managed, mild-mannered, compliant, but strong. May I say that, brethren, that this is a most compatible mount for our Savior. In his own words, he says to his disciples, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30. Wow. This is our king. Now it isn't that Jesus doesn't know how to be assertive and tough and judicial and kingly to those who will not succumb to his gentle spirit. And to those who will not succumb, a stronger hand awaits them. But God would rather men love him for his compassion, not his might. The scripture says, The man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 15, verse 17 and following. So he has this dual capability. He can come to you on a stallion with swords drawn. He can deliver you a blow that brings you to your knees. And causes you to bow before him. Or he can come to you with his compassion and his love. And will you not love me and bow before me graciously as the king that I am? Out of love, not out of terror. So this preferred means of entering Jerusalem, I say it again, was lowly. It was the foal of a donkey. Secondly, his chosen means of presentation was, nonetheless, public pomp. <laughs> Whatever lowliness is portrayed in this donkey cult, it must not escape our notice that Jesus is nonetheless presenting himself with a degree of pomp. I looked up the word. What does the word pomp mean? It means public ceremony and public display. 
doesn't necessarily mean pride or arrogance, but it has to do with lavish display. And so certainly he is presenting himself in that way. He is coming into Jerusalem as a king. He's not sneaking into the city incognito. He doesn't just walk through the city gates like some ordinary traveler that has arrived at his destination. No, no. He sent his disciples to specifically locate this donkey and her coat, and he allowed them to cover the beast with their cloaks and position him on it, and then to strew their garments on the trailway along with palms leading to the city. Luke 19, verse 35 and 36. And when the people began to shout, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means uh, save me, God, save me. Luke's account tells us that the Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Translation, you need to tell your followers that such statements about you are inappropriate for a mere mortal. But Jesus was not a mere mortal. He was not a lowly sinner in need of saving. He was, in fact, the Savior for whom the people clamored, Save me! Save me! Pharisees didn't like that. They didn't understand it. But the people did. And so Jesus' response to the Pharisees was this. I tell you that if they be quiet, that is, you want me to silence the people, if they be quiet, the stones will cry out, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the highest. Now in all of this, we see a radical, it, it is a radical departure from Jesus' normal modus operandi of the past. I mean, up to this point, he has done everything in his power to maintain a low-key ministry. Not in your face with the religious teachers of the day. Not deliberately portraying himself as a rival to Caesar's authority. And whenever the crowd got rowdy and would have seized him to make him king by force, or in the case of the jealous religious leaders who tried to various occasions to seize him and put him to death, Jesus would evade them. He would, he would slip through the crowd. He would vanish among the masses to avoid detection and arrest and also avoid the people taking him by force and trying to put a crown on his head. That was the past. The disciples themselves became painfully aware the escalation of tensions between Jesus and the conspirators when Jesus retreated to the east side of the Jordan to escape persecution out of Judah. But when word came to Jesus that Lazarus, his friend, was deathly ill, he determined to return. And the disciples said, let me read it for you, but Rabbi, uh, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And, 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 yet, and, and yet you were going to go back there? 
John 11, verse 8. See, they're, they're getting it. They're starting to see it. When Jesus persisted, yeah, we're going back there because Lazarus was so ill. Thomas, one of the disciples, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Translation, if Jesus is bent on this destructive mission, let's follow along with him and die by his side. They knew how dangerous this move was for Jesus. Safe on the east side of the Jordan. You cross that Jordan, you're crossing into enemy territory and they'll be coming at you with a vengeance. And now, back in Jerusalem, what does Jesus do? He rides into the lion's den deliberately on a defenseless baby donkey with no more than fishermen for bodyguards. What has changed Jesus' mind about secrecy and caution and wariness of the murderous intent of his enemies in Jerusalem? I mean, the Pharisees are still there, verse 19. The scribes and teachers of the law are still plotting his murder. So why would he, why would he do this? Here I am! He comes riding into Jerusalem. The answer is, his time has come. What time is that? Chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Can I say it this way, that Jesus' life, my life, your life, all our lives are locked into a defined destiny from which we cannot escape. Solomon tells us there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 2 and in verse 14, same chapter, I know that everything God does will endure forever Nothing will be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Verse 17, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. That's true in Solomon's day, and it was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in our day. You may not have all your days mapped out, but I want to tell you this morning that God has your days mapped out for you. The psalmist says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139, verse 16. Paul told the Athenian pagans, From one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he... Determine the time set for them and the exact places where they would live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far. 
from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising that man from the dead. Acts 17 verse 26 and following. It doesn't matter if they were pagans and believed in God or believed in idols rather than God or not. Paul is saying the God who is the only God there is has set the boundaries for you. And he's determined where you're going to live. And he's written in this book how many days you have. All of this being so, there is no such thing as premature death. Or as men like to say, well, so-and-so died before their time. Usually it's a reference to someone young because we don't think of dying of the young, we think of dying for old folk. But the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. It is appointed for men to die once. And after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27. The word here in Greek for appointed means reserved. There's a reservation that you're going to keep. Um, another way to translate it is there's a time that's been laid aside or laid away for every person. You know, at Christmas time, people uh, will place an expensive or a hot ticket item on layaway, right? Because they want to reserve it before it's all sold out. And they don't quite have the money at the moment, so they lay it away. And every intent is that the purchase will occur. There's no doubt in a person's mind that as they make the periodic payments and layaway, the debt will be cleared, and when the debt is cleared, they can redeem the item. Knock, knock. Hello, I'm here to pick up such and such. Well, let me put it this way. God ordered Jesus' birthday. Paul writes, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians 4, verse 4. And God set Jesus' dying day too. Look at verse 27 of our text. Now my heart is troubled, says Jesus, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No! It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven affirmed that Jesus' honor, Jesus' hour of glory had been accomplished. And Jesus said to the crowd, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death is that? By crucifixion, when you lift people up from the earth and nail them to a pole. John 12, verse 27 and following. Jesus knew and was fully at peace about it. That in but one week's time, the crowd shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Verse 13 would be shouting to Pilate, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! John 19, verse 15. One week later. One week later. Now what may we learn from 
this presentation on Palm Sunday? Well, number one, it's a tremendous lesson to learn. Knowing God's grace is in your future pacifies all fear. Or it should. <laughs> now, I didn't say eradicates all fear. I said it pacifies, it molds it over, it salves it over, it makes it bearable, it pacifies all fear. Knowing that God's grace is in your future pacifies all fear. It's evident in this narrative that Jesus and his disciples came out of hiding from across the Jordan and returned to the territory of Judah, fully aware that danger awaited them there. Thomas made it clear to the rest of the disciples that this move by Jesus would be his ruin and likely theirs. The disciples saw the handwriting on the wall, we would say. The religious leaders were not messing around or playing games. They had their spies out looking for Jesus to show. We studied in John 7 in our study downstairs at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Jesus first delayed going up to Jerusalem, but then later he relented and he went. And he went into the temple courts midway through the celebration and he began to teach. And we read, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Oh, 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 even the people have their eyes open. Here he is speaking publicly, and they, the conspirators, are not saying a word to him. Verse, two, verse 30, and they tried to seize him. This is in John 7. They tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. But boy, they were trying. <laughs> they were trying. When the Pharisees overheard the people surmising that Jesus may indeed be their Messiah, we are told, chapter 7, verse 32, then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. See, they're trying. They haven't given up. But all that backfired because instead of arresting Jesus, the temple cards returned to the religious leaders. And when they said, well, where is he? Where is he? Why didn't you bring him? Their answer was, no one has ever spoke the way this man does. John 7, verse 46. What is that? Well, it means they could not bring themselves to carry out their orders to seize Jesus because they recognized that there was nothing criminal or heretical in his conduct or in his teaching. This was God's protective grace in operation. His hour of death had not yet arrived and so all the plotting, all the scheming, all the lies, all the false charges meant to bring Jesus down were frustrated by God and Jesus' enemies walked away angry and empty-handed. Praise God. So from Jesus' perspective, we witness no sense of urgency, no panic, 
No fear while obviously standing in the camp of his enemies who plotted his death. Same applies to his entrance now into Jerusalem. Riding a donkey colt over a roadway strewn with palm fronds and bordered by fickle people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel, who but one week later would be calling for his crucifixion. Brethren, we live in a dangerous world. We Christians live in a dangerous world. The danger is escalating for Christians. It's easy to become petrified by fear. Fear of arrest, fear of persecution, fear of personal loss, fear of imprisonment, even fear of death. Lloyd Stiley, pastor of First Baptist Church in Gulf Shores, Alabama, makes reference to the Battle of Bull Run in which General Jackson stood his ground on his steed like a stone wall. Came, you know, one of his nicknames, Stonewall Jackson. Amidst muskets and cannonballs whizzing past him repeatedly. The battle was fierce. And Jackson's unflinching resolve, they saw him there sitting on that horse, all this stuff going past him, and it rallied his troops. It it, it instilled them with bravery to withstand the overpowering number of the Union forces. After the battle, Jackson was seen visiting the battlefield among his fallen men. 111 died that day and 373 went missing. One of his captains was with him and asked him, General, how is it that you can keep so serene and stay so utterly insensible with a storm of shells and bullets about your head. And Jackson replied, Captain Smith, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to be always ready whenever it may overtake me. And in this, if this was the way all men lived, then all men would be equally brave. What a great answer. Pastor Stiley gives this interpretation of Jackson's words. Basically what General Jackson told his captain is, I am invincible until God is through with me. Think about that. And so it is for all of God's people. Listen to the psalmist. He says, the Lord is my rock. He's my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 18, verse 2 and 3. And then further down in that same song, he goes on. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. 
He is the shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God beside the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms us with strength and makes my way perfect. Psalm 18, verse 29 through 32. Again, I say that knowing that God's grace is in your future, it pacifies all our fears. So, obviously, what should we be doing? We should be concentrating upon God's grace. That should be part of our meditation about God. Yeah, look, when we see, you know, the enemy surrounding us and all of those things, we need to think that God has us in the palm of his hands. And then a second lesson here is this. To acknowledge Jesus as the one who saves, that's what Hosanna means, to acknowledge that is not the same as committing oneself to the Savior. It may seem inconceivable that many, not all now, but that many in the crowd who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with accolades of praise, benedictions, even a sense of worship, would in the passing of but seven days vent their spleen on him in some of the most vicious, vile, condescending, and cruel mockery to ever part the lips of men. But that's what happened. Matthew tells us those who passed by the cross, those who passed by the cross hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. You see, this mockery consists of throwing Jesus' own words in his face. Not comprehending that the temple Jesus promised to rebuild in three days was his own body, which he did do in the resurrection. John 2, verse 21. They erred, we could say it this way, not knowing the scripture. They also ridiculed him as one who promised to save others, but uh, uh, could do nothing to save himself. That's another ignorant statement. For in the garden, Jesus rebuked Peter when he drew his sword and cut off Malchus' ear. And here's what Jesus said to Peter. Do you, think, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? 74,000 angels. Matthew 26, verse 53. Peter, do you really think I need your one little rusty sword? Do you think I need you to defend me, to deliver me? I have the armies of heaven at my disposal. All I need to do is ask. If he wanted to be rescued from the hand of his executioners, God was his father for the asking. The religious leaders joined in at this point saying, well, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God have him. 
or rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Here they're mocking both his power to save and his divinity as God's son. And they're saying something like this. Even God doesn't care what's happening to him. Even if he were to call on God, God won't save him. There is a brand of Christian, so-called, who adheres to Jesus in name only. They gladly call themselves Christians, wanting to identify with the passive Jesus, the, the gentle son of a carpenter who went about Palestine teaching righteousness and practicing ethical living. Jesus labeled them and defined them in the account of the four kinds of soil, on which the gospel seed of truth is sown. Here's what he said. The one who receives the seed that fell on rocky places is the man, or woman as the case may be, is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, He lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Matthew 13, verse 20 and 21. That's the stony ground hearer. In the short period of seven days, many of the crowd who had accepted Jesus with joy as their king, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, were walking by the scourged, beaten, bruised Jesus of Roman torture hanging on a cross, and they reconsidered their allegiance, thinking, you know, I don't know about this. That could be me up there. Like Peter in his denial, their language turned surly and cruel and bitter and biting, the only difference being that Peter repented And was forgiven and restored while the masses did not repent and were not forgiven. Let us all learn from this that people can and often do say the right thing about Jesus in the hour of joy. I just love Jesus. I just want to praise the Lord. But when things go sour, and it isn't comfortable to know or to be known as Jesus' disciple, they can turn on him with bitterness and cursing to save their own neck. Persecution for one's faith will define the faithful and will separate the goats from the sheep. May your profession of faith and mine be genuine through thick and thin. May God sustain his true people and make us fearless and faithful in the day of trial. Let's pray and then as a closing thought I'm going to have our sound man play a song for us and this will be our final song instead of the hymn that's in your bulletin but let us pray Lord 
this whole account of you entering into Jerusalem on the humble, gentle foal of a donkey speaks to us of your gentle spirit. This is your preferred way that people approach you and come to know you. There is the other side of you. There is the warrior on the steed. We see in the Revelation that you come riding on a white horse and followed by your army. So there is, this, there is the coming day of sword, the sword of battle. There is the coming day of trumpets being sounded. And that's a fearful day. The scripture says men will cry out for the rocks and the hills to fall on them, to hide them from your face. But the preferred way for people to meet you is to see you in your gentleness, in your willingness to forgive, to console and to bring healing to their sin-sick souls. Lord Jesus, if there's one here that's lost today, may they come to hear the gentle voice of Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They need rest, Lord, for their souls. Sin is a turmoil in our life. It causes us heartache and pain, as well as reaping wrath from our disobedience to God. But if you will come to us by the Holy Spirit and woo us and draw us, granting us the faith we do not have and the repentance we will not give, Lord, it will be a pleasure then to know the King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask this for your glory and for our good. Amen. Okay. I'm going to turn the lights down.